Well, good morning again. Um, so when we travel to Peru to see the Harrises, and before that, uh, on the ride up there is, in the desert, there's this set of ruins, uh, just adobe brick ruins that are, that are still there. Um, I'm fascinated by ruins. Like, no clue what was there, no clue what happened there, but it's just, for me, it just grabs my attention. Love seeing, I hadn't gone over to Europe, you know, got pictures of these great coliseums and the ruins that are left of them, and it just fascinates me. But as I was thinking about it this week, I was like, it's also kind of sad, isn't it? Like, there used to be lives here. There used to be thriving here. There used to be civilizations here. There used to be cheering and celebration and great events in people's lives right here in these places. And now all that's left is ruins that we can go take pictures of. And the reason it kind of struck me as I thought about it is how many of our lives, if we were to look at them, are filled with ruins. Places where there used to be life. Places where there used to be intimacy and celebration. Places where there used to be connection and feasting. And now, ruins. And I think, in my own spiritual life, where there used to be this vibrancy and intimacy with God, but now maybe there's this coolness or there's distance or drift. Or maybe it's in your marriage. There used to be this warmth and this intimacy and this love and this excitement. And yet we've let things cool off. Or worse, we've let things drift apart. Or with our kids or with a friendship at church, or wherever it is. There used to be life there, and now it's ruined. What's the way back? What is the way back if we look and we see ruins in some area of our life? Daniel's going to have that very same thought, and this passage is going to be about that very same thought. He is looking out over his people, and it's exile. He's looking out over the land God promised, and it's deserted. He's looking out over the temple that was the house of the very presence of God, and it's no stone on top of any stones. Nothing but ruins, nothing but desolation of what once was thriving. And so how does Daniel respond? We're going to be in Daniel chapter 9. And his way back, his starting point of coming back was to set his face intensely to looking at God and confessing his sin and pleading for restoration. And what a great place for you and I to start as well. Anywhere that you see ruins in your life, I'm going to pour my heart out in repentance to access God's mercy. And then I'm going to plead for the walls to be rebuilt, for the ruins to become habitable houses again, for life and flourishing to return in exactly those areas where it is missing. And that's what we're going to see in Daniel chapter 9, um, which goes right in with the theme we've been talking about in Daniel. Be hopeful, right? God is sovereign. He's working out his eternal plans. Uh, and, and we've looked at uh, going from the great events of, of, of God in the life of Daniel and God in the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the last time we were together, we talked about or we got into these visions that, that Daniel had throughout his, his ministry. And the last one we looked at was this little horn with a really big mouth that was the Antichrist. And the Antichrist was going to set himself up as God. The Antichrist was going to demand the worship of the nations. The Antichrist was going to have this big, boasting, arrogant mouth. He was going to have these scheming and plotting for power. Uh, He was going to be empowered by Satan. Um, All of these things that were part of it. He is going to crush the saints. He's going to war on the saints. He's going to prevail against you and me and all of us together. He is going to wipe us out. And then Jesus is going to come back and with the breath of his mouth slay him and destroy him. 
So for the rest of Daniel, you may have noticed we skipped over chapter 8. For the rest of Daniel, what we're going to do is we're going to take select passages from Daniel that move forward or add more information to these end times events that we're looking at. And so chapter 8 covers the Antichrist ground again. He's bold. He's scheming. um, He's destructive. He has this power that doesn't come from himself but outside of himself. And um, ultimately he's going to be destroyed, but he's not going to be destroyed by human power. He's going to be destroyed by the divine hand. And so um, chapter 8 re-encapsulates a lot of those things. And so that's why we're moving into chapter 9. And so in chapter 9, what we find is Daniel opening up his Bible. And as he does, he realizes it's time for some of God's promises to come true. It's time for what is desolate and what is empty and what is in ruins to come back to return and back to rebuilding. Instead of saying, well, God, you're sovereign. Go ahead and just rebuild it. He says, God, we are desperately sinful and we desperately need your mercy. Would you come and give us mercy? And then would you go and fulfill your promises? So he meets God's promises with his seeking and his pleading and his praying. And so that's what we're going to see in this passage. Um, as we see a God who delights to restore. A God who delights to pour mercy out on his people. A God who delights to forgive. A God who delights to, to give favor to his people. And so when you and I go and say, God, I, I'm sinful. We have a God who delights to forgive us. When we say, God, this is in ruins and this is broken. It is not the way they're supposed to be. And I don't know how we get back from here. You're meeting a God who delights to redeem and to restore. That's who you're talking to. So Daniel chapter 9 verses 1 through 19. In the first year of Darius, or Darius the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, uh, perceived in the books the number of years uh, that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame, as it is to this day, to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all of Israel. Those who are near and those who are far away and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All of Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath which was written in the law of Moses The servant of God have been poured upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole of heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. 
as it is written in the law of Moses. All this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready for us this calamity, and he has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the work that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought the people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn from your city, Jerusalem, from your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among those who are around us. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to the pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Have your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear to hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people who are called by your name. Let's pray together. Father, I don't stand here by my righteousness, but because of your mercy. We don't sit here saved by the blood of Jesus Christ because of our goodness, but because of your mercy. And we don't ask for you to restore homes and turn the hearts of fathers back to children and children back to fathers and parents back to kids and kids back to parents and husbands back to wives and wives back to husbands and and even church members back to church members. We don't ask that because we deserve it. We ask it because you're a God who is filled with mercy and lavishes favor upon the people who seek your face. And so, God, would you do that and so much more. Father, would you use your word by your spirit to bring a conviction on each of our hearts and the cleansing breath of repentance before you and confession before you so that grace might fill us again, forgiveness might fill us again, restoration might be the work that you do in us and through us again. Father, would you do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So pray that God would restore the ruins that are around you. Pray that God would restore the ruins that are around you. First, meditation and adoration create a heart posture for genuine prayer. Meditation and adoration create a heart posture for genuine prayer. Have you ever noticed how quickly you can talk yourself into getting angry? Like your husband or your wife comes home and they say one little word and all of a sudden in your heart, Anger begets anger, begets bitterness, gets frustration, and all the things that are bubbling up in your mind just fill up. And you can get angry so quickly over nothing. You can get bitter so quick over nothing. You can get critical of the people around you so easy, like over nothing. But on the other hand, you look at yourself and you're like, I'm doing pretty good. You know, there's a good reason for any of the bad stuff I do, and I don't do that bad of stuff anyways. And you live... In relationships that are critical and negative and struggling because it's so quick that this cycle of little problems or little complaints become big problems and big complaints as we work them up in ourselves. Did you know the opposite is also true? 
You can latch hold of the goodness or the progress or the blessing of another person. And you can think about that and you'll find more of them. And instead of it pulling you into bitterness and pulling you into separation, it's going to pull you into connection. It's going to pull you into a positiveness. It's going to pull you into joy. Well, the same thing comes in your relationship with God. You can be resentful and you can be bitter and you can be critical and you can be negative and you can live in the soup of your own negativity. Or you can latch on to the goodness of God. You can look at the goodness of God. You can look at the cross of Christ. You can look at the mercy he's given you. You can think about his goodness. You can think about what he's done. You can think about what he's like. You can think about what he accomplished for you. You can think about what he's promised to you. And all of a sudden your soul won't be filled with this negative downness. Instead, your soul will be filled with a, a, a spur and opportunity to worship and to celebrate. And, and you'll spend a lot more time looking at you, a lot less time looking at others. And the quality of life and relationship with God and others totally changes when we do that. What is the way out of that kind of mentality? The way out is let me go stare at the goodness of God. And let that begin to fill my heart in the way I think about people. So that's what we're going to see as, as we get into this. Daniel, uh, Daniel's prayer, just so we know, like Daniel prays a specific prayer for Daniel and Daniel's circumstance and Daniel's situation and the Jewish people, right? This is a specific prayer in Scripture. And we're going to study it that way, the text of it. But he also gives us this pattern for prayer that seeks God. He gives us this pattern for what does genuine repentance look like. He gives us this pattern for how do we go and pursue restoration in broken areas of our lives or, or the starting place for pursuing rest, restoration. And we're going to look at it that way as well. So we're going to see these two things side by side. What patterns and insights is he giving us with prayer and repentance and restoration as well as what is he actually saying and, and praying for? And so as we jump into the text, we're back into the time of Darius or Darius. Uh, and so Daniel is in his 80s at this point. Uh, Daniel probably hasn't gone to the lion's den yet. That's, that's probably coming here in the near future for him. And so this prayer and this, this time is happening about that time. And it's around, if you care about the history of things, about 538 B.C. And so it's 538 B.C. And what, is, what do we find Daniel doing at 80-something years old? We already know from the Den of Lions passage, three times a day, no matter how busy he was, no matter how important he became in the empire, he would go up to his little room, he would open up his windows towards Jerusalem, and he would pray. So he had a devotional life of three times a day praying for 70 years of exile. And is it shocking that he also spends his time studying the book of God? So Daniel, the three times a day praying prayer, is also sitting down with the book of God open, with the, what, what, what of the Bible he had open, um, and he's reading through it. And he just so happens to be in the book of Jeremiah. Now, I don't think in 70 years that this is his first time getting to Jeremiah. They only had like, you know, three quarters of the Old Testament available at that time. And so, like he's done before, he's reading the book of Jeremiah, but this time something's different. Something leaps off the page at him. Something he perceives, it says. God, God lights up a piece of the text of Jeremiah. You ever had that happen, right? You've read a book of the Bible over and over. This is like your 20th time studying this book of the Bible. But all of a sudden, something brand new pops off the page this time you're reading it. Right? It's a living book. It's active. It's sharper than the two-edged sword. And so Daniel's reading it, and God illuminates his heart, and he perceives something there that he hasn't picked up on before. And what does he perceive? Wait, there's this prophecy from Jeremiah. 
that the land would be desolate, that we will be in exile, that the temple will be in ruins, but it will be for a fixed period of time. It will be for 70 years. And God starts connecting some dots for Daniel, like, oh, okay, 605 B.C., we went into exile. It is now 538 B.C. Um, We've been in exile for 67 or 68 or 69 years, and there's a 70-year prophecy right here in God's book I'm starting to see that God wants to do something. God is stirring something because God has promised something. Let me read uh, for you from Jeremiah. So Jeremiah 29, it's also, I'll give you a couple of verses if you want them in your notes. Jeremiah 25, 8 through 12 is where this prophecy is found. And then Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14 is what I'm going to read here. Um, and so in Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14, it says, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Might have heard this one earlier today. Not planned. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then... You will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you and you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to this place in which I have sent you into exile. And so this is what Daniel is reading all those years ago. And he sees this promise that at the end of 70 years, look at this, God is going to do it. And it doesn't matter what Daniel does. God is going to do it. I will bring you back. I will visit you. I will come get you. It's going to be up. I will restore you to this place. And so in light of the promise that God has made that he is going to restore what is desolate, he's going to rebuild ruins, in light of the sovereign plan of God that has been prophesied that he's going to bring these people back, seek the face of God for God to fulfill the word of God and the promises of God that he has given and that's exactly what he does God has promised to rebuild God has promised to return and at the same time my people are going to pray my people are going to seek my face finally they're going to wake up and get tired of living separate from me in exile and they're going to turn back to me And Daniel perfectly embodies what God promises in Jeremiah 29. He's going to seek him with his whole heart. He's going to pray. He's going to call on God. And God is going to do exactly what he promised to do. He is going to restore and rebuild what has been destroyed and torn down by the sin of the people, by the consequences of the sin of the people. And so we find him reading this word. And... Now it's time Darius and Cyrus, the great king of Persia, have come in. And there's one more passage I want to read for you. This passage happens 150 years before the events we're talking about. Cyrus's dad hadn't even been born yet. And Isaiah opens his mouth with prophecy. And he says, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. 150 years by, before anything happens, by name, God names the person that will be part of the restoration. And he says, thus says the Lord to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him. I will go before you, Cyrus, to, and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and iron. I will give you treasures of darkness and hordes in secret, that you may know that as I, the Lord, God, that, that I... The Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name, 
For the sake of my servant Jacob, Israel my chosen, I call you by name, Cyrus. I name you, though you don't know me. I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. And then he closes it this way. I have stirred him up in righteousness. I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and he shall set my exiles free. 150 years before any of this stuff is happening. God said, this is the guy that I'm going to use to restore. And so all these things are coming to place right here. All of these events are converging right here. The guy that God named through Isaiah is right here. And that leads Daniel to seek the face of God. So look what he does. Then I turned my face to God. Literally, the the word means I gave my face to God. And it speaks of the fervency and the intensity in which Daniel goes to seek the face of God. God, if this is your promise. God, if it's time for you to fulfill it. God, if you're going to restore what is absolutely in ruins around me, then I am going to set my face to pursue you with all my might for you to do exactly what you've promised to do. So he turns his face to God based on his study of the word of God and based on his survey of how desperate the circumstances. And then he begins to pray. And look how he accompanies his prayer. Please for mercy, right? This is emotional language. That there's an intensity to his prayer life. There's this urgency within his soul of his, his prayer life. He can't take it being this way anymore. And then he prays to the Lord my God. And Almost never in the book of Daniel does the name Yahweh, Lord, show up in the book. Now, Lord, written a different way, Lord meaning Master shows up, Most High God shows up, right? The all-powerful God shows up, but Yahweh, the personal name of God for his covenant people that means they're in a relationship with him, that almost never shows up, but it shows up here. God, you're the God who loves us. God, that you're God that loves us by covenant. You are the Lord, my God. You are the Lord, my God, right? And so what is the basis of him praying at all? What's the basis of his prayer? He is in a relationship with God that prompts his prayer life. And then how does he start? Oh, and sorry, he intensifies it, right? He's fasting. He's got sackcloth, which is a way of showing grief or mourning that is happening. Right? And so this is his prayer. Like, based on my relationship with you, I'm going to seek you with everything. And how does he start? How does his meditation in the word turn into prayer? You are the great and awesome God who keeps covenant. You are the great and awesome God who has steadfast love. And notice, because we're going to see him in a second, there's pairings to intensify it. Great and awesome. Keeps covenant, covenant love. This does not want to stay. Stop it. Sorry. Um, and so, he starts with adoration for God, right? I've just read, you're the God who's made a covenant with us that includes a land and includes a nation. I've just read that you've made promises to restore your people after 70 years. And so, I'm going to pray to you based on the fact that you keep your covenant. And I'm going to pray to you based on the fact that you have a covenant love, a steadfast love. Right? It's a word throughout the Old Testament that is a word, I love you, I have chosen to love you based on the covenant that I have made with you. It's not based on whether you deserve it. It's not based on whether you're living up to it. It's not based 
on can you can you earn it and be good enough for it it is based on i have made a covenant with you and that includes a love for you that is unbreakable and so he is great and he's awesome there's something about him that 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 strike like when you see him it's uneasy it strikes awe it strikes fear in you. So, God, you're so amazing, so astounding, so glorious that to catch a glimpse of you makes me a little uneasy because you're just that great. And so you're great and you're awesome and your steadfast love and your, or your steadfast love and your, your keeping of covenant that is part of this. And so if you look at the, the process of what, what he's going through, what is the process? Open the book. Okay, God, I see what's going on around me and I can't take it. I'm going to open your book. And when I open your book, your promises leap off the page. And so I'm going to seek you with all my heart. And so the question I have for you is where are the ruins in your life? Where are the broken down walls in your life? Where is the decay starting in your life? And so again, maybe you look in and you're like, God. My relationship with Jesus is not at the level and the intimacy and the closeness that it once was. And maybe God would just wake you up and say, that's not okay. You don't want to live that way anymore. Maybe you look at your marriage and you're like, we talk. And when we talk, it's basically up like we're administrative assistants to each other. And then how do we go chaperone everything that's supposed to happen this week? And you realize... There's not a warmth there. There's not an intimacy. There's not a connection that was once there. And you're like, I can't live. This is not the way it's meant to be. Or maybe you look at your kids. And they're older and they're adults or they're younger or they're high school or they're elementary school. And God, there's just things about them that are rebellious. Or there's things about them where they're hard to your spirit. Or there are things about them where, where they don't have a heart for you that I want them to have for you. And it's not Okay. Or you have broken relationships within the church or within your family. And, and, and you're getting to the place where it's like, it's not okay. Where are the ruins in your life? And then what are you going to do about it? Here's a great place to start. If you see the ruins, then look in the book. If you see the ruins, and look at the book. And you know what you're looking for? God, who are you? What do you like? What do you desire? What are your promises? What have you accomplished? Because I want my soul to be filled up with that in a way that pushes me back to prayer, pushes me back to seeking. And so look at the book. That's the first way back. Look at the book. That's the first way to begin rebuilding walls that have been torn down in your life. The second step, an all-encompassing heartfelt repentance opens us to God's lavish mercy. All-encompassing heartfelt repentance opens us to God's lavish mercy. So it's that time of year again where we got to mow the grass once a week, right? Mow the grass once a week. We're good. Got mostly good grass in there. Got a couple of weeds in there. But as long as I mow the grass once a week, it's all green and all, all looks fine. Y'all there? Your yard looks great, right? The weeds are green. The grass is green. All good. But every once in a while, you'll be riding on your lawnmower. You'll be pushing your lawnmower. And you're like, God, there's a lot of weeds. And so let's throw some weed and feed out and see what happens. Because, you know, the weeds grow different. Like if you don't mow it enough, the weeds pop up a lot faster and it looks awful. When you think about your spiritual life, how often are we just mowing over the sin weeds that infest our life? And they're fine because I mowed them off. They're fine. I said, I'm sorry. They're fine. I'm even going to try to do better next time, maybe. At least I'll say that. 
But let's commit ourselves, just like Daniel does in this way, let's commit ourselves to spraying the gospel on the weeds of sin in our lives so that the root dies, not just what we're seeing on the surface gets cut down. And that's what repentance does. It goes all the way to the heart of the sin with the depths of the gospel. Because you know where sin abounds, what happens? Grace abounds much more. And so are we spraying the gospel at the root of our sins or are we simply covering them over as we go? Right? And so confession in the New Testament, the word confession means to say the same thing. Right? To say the same thing about God as God says about God positively or to say the same thing about my sin that God says about my sin negatively. When the Old Testament, the root word for confession has to do with know or make known. And so in the Old Testament confession, it, same kind of concept, it is to make known about God what is true about God, declaring it to me and him in praise, right? Or to make known, to publicize my sin to God, um, just so, or to publicize, to make known my sin to me and, and to God, to confess it, to make it known. And then that is met with repentance, which, in the, which, which is a word that simply means to change our minds. Right now, by default, there's areas of your life where you believe sin is the place where you'll find satisfaction, meaning, fulfillment, the good life. Something better is offered by sin. Something, and so what is repentance? It is to change our mind. To where no longer are my thoughts that's life, to God is life. God is satisfaction. God is meaning to, to pursue him and what he gives me is what is best for me. And that's repentance. And that's what we see playing out here. There's no excuses in Daniel. Daniel didn't even do this stuff. He was a teenage boy when the final judgment came. He wasn't part of the mess that led up to it. And yet he identifies with his people and confesses on behalf of his people. No excuses, no hold barred. We totally deserve this, God. And then look at the contrast. God, you're great and awesome. Pair. God, you make covenant and you have steadfast love for us. Pair. And as perfectly holy as you are, God, that's how opposite, desperately wicked we are. Do you see these pairs that start to fold out? God, we've sinned and done wrong. We've acted wickedly and rebelled. And we have turned aside from your commandments and we didn't listen to your prophets. And so you have this this multiplying effect of like, God, we have blown it. We get it. And then did God leave us in our sin? Does God leave you in your sin? No. What did God do when we're running after idols? What did God do when we actually put idols inside his temple or you place idols inside your heart? What does God do? He sends these people with the word of God to bring you back to faithfulness to God called the prophets. And he says, please come back. Right? The prophets, their job, their design is to call uh, straying people back to covenant faithfulness. It's not to tell the future. The future was a small part of their ministry designed to bring them back to hope and back to life in God. And so it was these people that would call them back to covenant faithfulness. And so God pursued them with prophets. And they kept, they wouldn't listen to them. And then God gave them a book and he continuously added to his book, right? And he says, here's my word. And they wouldn't obey his book. His book's like, come back to me. No, there's life with me. I want my own broken wells. Come back to me and I'll receive you. No. And so he sent them prophets and he sent them his word and they wouldn't return. And then he warned them. 
if you continue on the path of rebellion, you will increase the experience of consequences. In Deuteronomy 28, there's these two mountains that were very visible representations. There's the Mount of Blessing and the Mount of Cursing. And there's these accelerated blessings to faithfulness that were given. And there's these accelerated curses or consequences of sin. And it was basically, when you experience this, keep going because I've got more for you. I've got better for you. And then, on the other side, there was these mountain of curses. And they got more intense and worse as they went along. And so you had famines. And you had blights on crops. And you have diseases. And you had armies defeating you. And then, ultimately, you had exile as the highest one. And so the point was, if you find yourself experiencing one of these low-level consequences, stop where you are. Come back. And so even this warning was the grace of God to say, when you start running up against this stuff, it's a warning light that you better quit driving the car until you get it to a mechanic. You better quit walking in this direction. Come back to me. And they would not do it. And so God did exactly what he said he would do. And he wipes them out in exile. And he fulfills his promise to them. Despite pursuing them, despite warning them, despite wanting them back, they kept going. And then look at what Daniel says. We, we experience the maximum consequence of exile. And yet we still wouldn't entreat the favor of our God. And that's the indictment, isn't it? We still wouldn't listen. And isn't that true in your life? Like the wheels of my life are grinding and there's stress or they're taking down. But I'm not going to stop. So I keep going and it breaks more. And I keep going and it breaks more. Then all of a sudden it's like, God, why did you let this happen? God, what's wrong with you? God, why did you let me down? I've been trying to get your attention for all this time. Turn back to me. And you won't turn back. And now I'm going to blame God for that? How often do we do that, right? Come back. All these warning signs are signs to come back. Because look at the thread that runs through the text. God, you're righteous. We absolutely deserve this. But then look from there what the threat is. We deserve open shame. To you belong mercy and forgiveness. The essential nature of God. That's true of God just as his justice is true of him. The essential nature of God is what? Mercy and forgiveness are who he is. And then as you move forward, what's the thread? We didn't entreat his favor. What does that mean? God has this storehouse of grace that he loves to give his people. This storehouse of favor that he loves to give his people. And so will we be people that go and knock on the door to ask for it? If he delights to give grace, are we going to be people who put ourselves to receive grace? And that's the thread. And then look at the last part. You delivered us out of Egypt. You set us free from slavery. And what's the implication? And we ran right back into it. You set us free from slavery in Egypt so that we could, by our sin, run right back into slavery in Babylon. But God, you set us free from slavery before, for your great name before, you can do it again. So I think we think of repentance as this dirty word or this harsh word or a word that preachers beat us over the head with. It's not. Do you know what repentance is? It's the key God puts in your hand to open up the door of grace. It is the key God puts in your hand to open up the door for mercy to flood back into your life again. It's the key that takes the prison and opens it up so you can run out into the goodness of God again. We think that if we ignore sin, then everything will be good. If we ignore uh, hard truths about sin, that, that, then everything will be peaceful and acceptable. And it's only when you talk about this ugly, harsh stuff called sin that's bad. No. 
Like the path to life is the path of repentance. The path to mercy is the path of repentance. The path to grace is the path of repentance. The path to God's lavish favor in your life is the path that travels through repentance. And so are we a people who delight with the goodness of God and the promises of God? Grab them. What is the path back to life? It is confess. Say what's true about God. Say what's true about your sin so that you can turn from thinking that your way, what you earn and what sin offers is right to what God says is right. And then begin to walk out the change that you have just prayed for. Then begin to pursue the change that you've just prayed for. That's how life will fill your life. That's how the ruins of your life will begin to look inhabitable again. That's the way God's designed. And then the last part, we won't go into it much. Prepared hearts pour out requests for redemption's full effect. Prepared hearts pour out requests for redemption's full effect. Right? Second Chronicles, which we've all read and talked about. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. That has nothing to do with America. That is a Jewish promise. But you know who it applies to, well, who it most directly relates to? It relates to you and to me and to the church. We're God's people. The church is God's people now. You are God's people if you're in Christ. So if we will humble ourselves, if we will pray, if we will seek the face of God, if we'll turn from the sin in our homes and in our lives and in our churches, then God will come and restore churches and God will come and restore homes and God will come and restore us. Right? And so what's the prayer? For your sake, for your sake, for your hill, for your city, for your people, for your work, for your sake, for your name, for your people, for you, God, because we know what we deserve. And so when you finally get to the place of making your request, you see that, right? He hasn't made his request yet. He's acknowledged his posture. He's acknowledged his condition. He's acknowledged their sin. But now he's at the place where he's Do it because you are this glorious. Do it because we want your name to be seen as great. Do it because your glory is not being seen among the people around us. Your glory is not being seen in our home. Would you do it for that reason? And then he closes with this like machine gun of, of requests for restoration, right? And it says, Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, pay attention. Lord, act. Don't delay, God. Hurry it up for your own sake, for your city, for your people. And so what is his request? You see the ruins, God. We deserved it. You see the temple, not a stone on top of itself, God. You see your city laid in waste, and you see your land that was promised to your people totally empty. God, it's our fault, but God, for your glory, rebuild what was broken. Is that a prayer that you would delight to pray for yourself, for your family, for your home, for your kids, for, for the church? Is that a prayer you'd delight to pray? God, you long for better. You long for more intimate. You long for more glorifying. You long to put the gospel on display. You long to, to, to restore the years that the locust drove away as an image of this. You long to do that. Like That's what you delight to do, God. And so since you love doing that, for your sake, not mine, would you do it? Would you hear? Would you pay attention? Would you act? And would you do it right now? Right? He's pressing on God the urgency of the moment. And here's an amazing thing just from the text. Daniel will never step foot in the land that he left 70 years ago again. 
He will die sometime in the next couple of years. Maybe he gets to see the first group of exiles out. Maybe he doesn't. But he will die in the land of captivity, praying for the next generation to experience the land he was taken from. The blessings of God that were taken from him, that they would, that they would experience all of them. And he's praying this prayer on behalf of the people in the past for the blessings of the people in the future. So that the next generation would taste the fullness of God in a lot of ways he never got to. He sees his situation and he sees God. And it makes it untenable. And so he seeks God. He sees his sin and the sins of his people. And he confesses them because that's where mercy comes from. And then he pleads with God to do exactly what God delights to do. Restore what's broken down. A few practical things as we, as we uh, wrap up here. First, survey your life. Where do you want God to work? Where are the ruins? Where are things not the way they're supposed to be? What are some warning signs you see in your life right now today? What are some things God has done that you need to express thanks for? Right, survey your life, right? Second, open the book and gaze at God. Survey your life and survey God. Open the book and gaze at God. What is God like? What has God promised? What has God done? Who is he? And stare at it till you see him. Stare at it until something stands out. And so here's how I'd say it simply and practically. Read the Bible five out of seven days of your life. Aim for about a chapter. And this is starting if you've already got more, do more. Right? Aim for about a chapter and do not stop reading that chapter until something stands out. Something burns in your heart. Something comes off the page. Gaze at the book. We see our ruins and we see God. And then the last one, set aside some time to confess. Almost always, and I would probably even say always, you want to know where always the best place to start on the road back is? Looking at yourself. Looking at your sin, looking at what you've contributed, look at your failures, look at, look at where you've strayed, look at your distance, look at your lack of intimacy with God, and, and confess that, pursue that first. That you might be restored so you're able to restore. That you might be at peace with God so you're able to make peace with others. But start here, right? Uh, The psalm says, search me and know me. See if there is any wicked way in me. Lead me into the path everlasting. Would you just pray that? And then would you just spend enough time to let God not just tell you what to mow down and drive over, but, but to show you your heart and what's really there. So you can walk through this process in really intentional ways because I promise there's things you've distracted from, there's things you've missed, there's things you've hidden, there's things you've excused, there's things that are fine because everybody else does them anyways. And if you would just give God enough time and silence with the permission to seek uh, and find and show you what's there, he'll do it. And here's the beautiful thing. What you find, he'll forgive What you bury and hide will continue to poison you. But what you find there and confess, he'll forgive it. He loves to do that. He delights to give great mercy. The clearer you see God, the clearer you'll see sin, the clearer you'll see the ruins of your life, but the more power and the more pursuit you'll have for God to go restore it. And that's exactly what I want us to pray for. That's exactly what I want for your life. That's exactly what I want for mine. Let's pray. So, Father... We bow before you, and we're not righteous, and we're not worthy, and we're not good, 
And Lord, if we're honest with each other, we're not okay. Our spiritual life, it's not okay. Our church life, it's not okay. Our marriages, it's not okay. Our, 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 our relationships with our kids, it's not okay. God, there's strained relationships with others. They're not okay. And so, Father, would show yourself merciful as you joyfully delight to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from our unrighteousness so that we're really clean. We don't just look clean to others. We are clean, God. God, would you do that? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to our time of invitation, God would delight to forgive you of your sins. He would delight to adopt you into his family. Have you ever been convicted of your sins, that you are separated from a holy God, and that's going to be forever, and you're never going to be able to do anything about it, and you're not good enough, and you can't be good enough to do anything about it? And then has God ever showed you the gospel? Has he ever showed you his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sin, died on the cross for your separation to bring you back? Have you ever turned from your sin and put faith in Jesus alone to save you? That white sheet we mentioned, you can fill that out, and we'd love to talk to you more about that. But God would delight to save you. All who call on the name of the Lord, he'll save. But you know what today would be a great day for, for God's people? It'd be a great day to confess your sins. It'd be a great day to turn from sin to the life-giving grace that God has. To entreat the favor that's being held back. What a great time to do that. You can do that where you are. You can do that up front. But maybe for you, there's a very specific ruin in your life. There's a very specific wall torn down. There's a very specific broken heart attached to it. And today, you just want to pour that out to God. You can do that here. You can do that where you are. We're going to stand and sing together, and you respond how the Lord is leading you during this time.